We've entered the month of February and I expect most of you will have looked at your calendar and seen the new Dhammapada verse that is written there, hopefully as an encouragement for your contemplation for the next month. So I thought perhaps I could speak this evening about that verse. If I remember rightly, it's verse 193. And it says, it is hard to find beings of great wisdom. Rare are the places in which they are born. Those who surround them when they appear, no good fortune indeed. If you have looked at the verse, you'll see it. Associated picture there is uh, one of Ajahn Liam, the current abbot of Wat Bapong, Ajahn Chah's monastery in, in Thailand. And, and when I was uh, preparing the calendar, which was about a year ago, these things usually happen about a year in advance, and I was sent these very lovely photographs, and I thought, well, that's a nice picture, I'd like to put that on the calendar, and so then as usual, go through the Dhammapada and find a corresponding verse. And I thought, well, that fits, that really fits. So Ajahn Liam is a, is a truly wise being, a, a very beautiful person to be around. And, and to have a chance to live with such a person is a great blessing indeed. And I didn't really know him when I lived in Thailand, whatever it was, 30 to 35 years ago. Uh, he was the chanting acharya at the time that I was ordained, but at those days he was quite a young monk and he was just off on his own, uh, doing his own practice and keeping to himself, so I didn't see much of him. Um, but these days when I go to Thailand, or the last few years I've been there, it's been, it has been a beautiful thing to be able to just go and spend a little bit of time with him. And, and for the young monks who, who live there now, they certainly... Um, very grateful for any time they get to spend with him. In my own case, I, I did have some time with, uh, as some of you know, with Ajahn Chah and with Ajahn Tate. And to be around uh, beings that are really wise uh, is a great blessing. It's like it's almost like you pick something up. It's like that story I think I, I've probably told before of when I was asking a, a Christian monk who came to visit here whether he taught the people who came to see him how to pray. Uh, he's a contemplative monk who lives up in the borders, a, a hermit who not far from here, and people who want spiritual guidance go and stay with him. And So I asked him, do, 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 do you teach people who come to pray? Because when I was uh, brought up as a Christian, nobody ever taught me how to pray. They said you're supposed to do it, but nobody ever taught me how to do it. And and he said, oh no, prayer is not something that's taught, it's something that's caught. 
It's like a disease. You know, you hang around somebody who's infected with it and you pick it up. So it's a fortunate infection that you can pick up if you're around people who know how to do it. And I tend to think of you know, something like that when being around truly wise beings. There's, there's just something that you pick up, something that's mirrored, something that's inspired. And, and to seek out such beings and to spend time with such beings is indeed a great blessing. In fact, the, um, it's interesting to note that the story that's associated with this verse, the story that's recorded anyway, uh, suggests that it, it came, the verse was given in response to when the Venerable, <coughs> the Venerable Ananda was sitting there considering how, uh, talking, thinking about thoroughbred elephants are only born in such and such a breed of elephants and thoroughbred horses are only only appear in such a breed of horses. And, and if you've got that particular breed of horse or elephant, then you're really fortunate. And his mind was wandering around thinking such things. And then he said, I wonder what the Lord would say if I asked him about thoroughbred men. And so we went to the, the Buddha and asked him about this. And, and the Buddha pointed out that thoroughbred uh, beings, uh, or what I translate as truly wise beings, are, are very rare, but when they do appear then it's a great blessing for anybody who's living around them. <coughs> Contemplating this verse, when I, when I look at it, uh, one of the things that stands out for me is the, uh, just the concept of a, of a, a wise being. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is worth spending some time thinking about what is a wise being, what makes a being wise. We can read about these things and we say, well, that's obviously true. It would be great to meet a wise being, but if we just stop for a minute and, and consider, well, what is a wise being? What makes a being really wise? And, and what do I think a wise being is? Not, not what necessarily does it say in the Tripitaka. What, you, know, you could read that up, but just also listening to your own intuition, your own sense of what, what is a wise being? What do we value? You know, there's a lot of words around that, spiritual words that these days end up being used in the pejorative, but not usually the word wisdom or wise. You don't usually hear that word being used in the pejorative. It's something we truly value. You know, sila or maybe morality or, or contentment or patience or modesty. These, these virtuous Concepts and words, good as they might be, are often uh, undervalued and, and, and you, the words are often used in the pejorative. But with wisdom, it is something we truly value. So what is it that we're valuing? I think it's a, like an indicator of things that in our heart we intuit are truly worthy. Yeah, and we, I think so it, it is actually useful to, I think, to spend some time, just pick up this word and and listen to it, take it inwards. Where does it go to within us? Do we know, have we met wise beings? Have we met wisdom? And what does it do to us? Are we wise? Are we developing wisdom? One of the things that comes to my mind when I I think of a wise being is somebody who 
It doesn't make a problem out of life. Yeah. Life is the way it is. Yeah. And, but can we accept it? Can we accord with it? This lovely planet Earth that we happen to live on. I mean, can you imagine living on Mars or something? Photographs they've been sending back of Mars. I mean, how awful that would be. You know, we've got, we got planet Earth. I mean, we're lucky. And in this wonderful country, Britain, I mean, whatever the English say about it, I think it's a great place and I mean, truly wonderful, fortunate circumstance that we're, that we're living in. And, and uh, can we accord with it? Or do we make a problem out of it? Well, I think we stop and think about it. Well, the evidence is it's pretty easy to make a problem out of things. But for me, a wise being doesn't make problems out of things. And the beings that I've been around that I think of as wise, they just don't make a problem out of life. Like a few days ago, I was, I went down to Amarawati. Um, uh, Ajahn Vimalo, many of you will know, has, has um, crafted a very, very beautiful uh, Buddha image for our monastery. And, and so I went down there with Richard to, to pick it up. And it just happened to coincide with uh, Lumpur Sumato coming back from having been away for about two months. And I, uh, so that was Wednesday. And then Thursday, I spent nearly all Thursday morning having breakfast and and, and talking with him, which was, which was truly lovely, and and he was uh, he was talking to me about how wonderful he feels now about being a monk. Uh, he's always felt wonderful being a monk, but recently he's announced, as probably a good number of you have heard, that he's he's moving on. He's leaving Amaravati and he's going back to Thailand. And uh, after however many years, I don't know how many years he's been uh, as a monk, but he he's decided this is the time. He's seventy six this year. And he wants to spend the rest of his years uh, really quiet and uh, simple. And, uh, and he said, it's such a wonderful feeling to think there's three robes in a bowl and he's going back to Wat Pong to be near Ajahn Liam. He and Ajahn Liam were buddies when they were junior monks together. And, and he said, the simplicity of it. And, but he was also mentioning how, uh, you know, considering this, this, this option and, and what, what he's decided to do, and, Later on this year, in October, after the Wasa, that uh, you know, concerns did come up in his mind. But what about my age? You know, I'm getting old, and and uh, I need to look after myself. He said, "No, I'm not going to think about it." Now. So I'm a summoner. I got three robes in a bowl, and I just live simply as a monk, and trust in that. That's what a summoner is supposed to do, and and not make a problem out of aging. You know. Uh, that's so inspiring to me. That's a sign of wisdom to be able to do that. That is, that's to me, that counts. Now, you can have very uh, clever ideas about uh, the universe and everything in it, and and uh, but when it comes to actually dealing with life, with like getting old, in my generation amongst now, when we get together, we talk about what additives we're taking. You know, have you tried this version of glucosamine? You know, it's better than that other one. And, yeah. <laughs> it takes its toll. Uh, aging takes its toll. The joints are not happy. And do we say, well, this is how it is and accord with it, or do we start complaining about it? It's so beautiful to hear Ajahn Sumedha talking about it. I refuse to engage in this concern. I'm just going to trust not make a problem out of it. Or also I've uh, been impressed listening to uh, various um, members of the, the local Thai community that I've been speaking with about how they coped with the snow this year. I mean, 
you don't, they don't do snow in Thailand and and of course a few days of snow is fun and entertaining but when it goes on for weeks it's not much fun anymore and but often when I raised it with the Thai people coming from their traditional Buddhist values and background and I would talk to them about is it a problem they said oh it's just the way it is yeah. and I think oh, that's wonderful I, that's really it's conventional wisdom this is not we're not talking about super mundane wisdom we're just talking about conventional wisdom here but how valuable that is to have that established in our hearts and minds an interest a willingness a, an ability to accord with life to not make a problem out of it yeah. also well, I was watching something a, a program not so long ago about uh, it was reflecting on the tsunami and how people recovered from that, uh, which was a disaster uh, in any terms of the word. But how well the Thai people generally coped with that. And, and the conventional wisdom that the Buddhist teachings give us, the law of karma, the teachings on rebirth, uh, the, the conventional wisdom of, of right understanding, right view, clear seeing, equips us with uh, an attitude to life whereby we're less inclined to make a problem out of life life can be agreeable and wonderful at times and uh, and when it is well then of course we enjoy it but at other times it's not wonderful it's not enjoyable it's not easy it can be really really difficult and how do we meet that how do we cope with that well that's wisdom to be able to cope with that at least that's one way I like to think about it and and is something really worth, uh, really worth developing, uh, really worth cultivating. Also, while I was at Amrawati, I was speaking with uh, various other people who were living there, staying there, and visiting there, and and it was apparent that uh, not everybody was. Well, in fact, nobody's really happy about the idea of Ajahn Sumato moving on. It's come as a big shock to a lot of people. Uh, I guess everybody knew, well, it will happen sooner or later. And if we stop and think about it, well, one certainly can have mudita. How wonderful for Ajahn Sumato at 70. And how sensible. You know, he's still got hopefully a good number of years ahead of him and he's healthy and 76 and, and he can live out the last years of his life uh, really focused on his inner work and with, with ease and, and contentment and, and not having to deal with all the politics and all the issues of running a monastery, which I'm sure anybody and everybody can understand is uh, jolly hard work. But as much as we might uh, be able to uh, pay attention to Mudita and uh, feel good about it, and at the same time there's also a sense of loss. And for, for a good number of people, this is really, this is really a shock. This is really hard to take that Ajahn Sumato is not going to be around and uh, but of course the wise way to deal with that is to see what are we doing uh, with the way life is uh, nobody's going to deny Ajahn Sumato is entitled to make this choice and, and um, those of you who might be, haven't heard and are concerned about it well then I would probably like to know that Ajahn Amaro is coming to take his place as abbot at Amarawati and and an inspiring, very inspiring, very capable monk who uh, has previously been living at Amarawati, uh, Abayagiri in California, and uh, 
very, very much valued, appreciated member of that community. And, and Amrawati is very lucky that he's, uh, the community there are willing and to let him go and to come back and take over at Amrawati. A very enormous task that he's got to take on. But even feeling good about Ajahn Amaro coming, even feeling good about Lumpur Sumato uh, going off and having a quiet time and doing what he really needs to be doing, but still, the pain of loss is there. And what do we do with it? Do we face it with wisdom or do we face it with resistance or reaction, conditioned reaction? We have a choice in that. Now, I think if we don't have a concept of a wise relationship to life, if we don't even have a concept of dhamma, of freedom, then we just react. So I don't like it. Even if a part of us would like to do the decent thing and, and say, sadhu, wonderful, Rajan Sumato, we're going to get pulled into despair because of a lack of perspective, a lack of clear seeing, a lack of wisdom. A wise being is able to feel the loss but feel it in perspective. There is a perception of loss. Yes, there's loss. There's a sadness. I know myself when I first heard it. I thought, wow, that's a bit much, isn't it? (laughs) It's okay for him to take a back seat. I don't mind if he, you know, doesn't give all the talks and doesn't run the show. I mean, Ajahn Amaro come if he wants, but, you know, he doesn't have to go, does he? It took me a wee while as well. there's there's, There's a sense of... Well, you know, it's really nice having him around. I like him a lot. I, mean, I appreciate his confidence and his clarity and his, his wisdom. Uh, in fact, I've become rather dependent on it for the last 35 years. And since now I'm not flying anywhere, well, that means it's going to be hard to see as in Sumato. So, yeah, I, I definitely didn't like the idea when I first heard it either. But because we're faced with that which we dislike or that which we're not comfortable with doesn't mean we have to suffer we, we can feel the pain of loss yeah. or as you, you've heard me speak about many times before the example of, of, of when the Buddha heard that the Venerable Sariputta and the Venerable Moggallana his chief disciples had passed away his, his, his description of the feeling of loss was like the sun and the moon have disappeared, have gone out of the sky. Yeah, that's profound. But he went on to say that although he had this feeling of loss, as if the sun and the moon have gone out of the sky, he said, there is no sorrow, no pain, no lamentation, grief or despair. In other words, the, the Buddha's wisdom meant that he didn't make a problem out of life. Of course, Sariputta and Moggallana were going to die. Yeah. If you're born, you're going to die. We all know that. But do we really know it? Or do we just know about it? A truly wise being really knows it, whereas uh, the average person knows about it. And I think this is, this is a, a profound, uh, the important aspect of the Buddha's teachings, that our goal is real wisdom. It's not even just having conventional wisdom. It's jnana dasanang, as it's spoken about in the scriptures. Insight knowledge, jnana dasanang. insight seeing, insight knowledge that uh, is transcendent knowledge. Now what we're talking about, generally speaking, is conventional wisdom. You know, a a good way of thinking about life, like everything's impermanent, everything changes, everything that's born dies. This is good, this is helpful. This helps everybody to think like this. 
But more than that, what the Buddha was telling us, he realized, he arrived at was at a direct knowing of this. Not just an intellectual grasp of the idea, but a direct knowing which fundamentally shifted his consciousness. So from that point onwards, it wasn't possible to suffer. So for us, we can hold the understanding, we can hold the idea of impermanence and, and change and uncertainty. And if we hold that idea consciously, mindfully, sensitively, in an embodied, skillful way, that really helps us deal with the changing nature of life. But that's not just our goal, that, that, the Buddha, that, that's fine, that helps us cope. But what the Buddha was pointing to was a transcendent wisdom, uh, which means that once we directly see these things for ourselves, with jnana dasana, with real clear seeing, well, then it's not possible to suffer anymore. And so there's the conventional wisdom, uh, or what's called called in the tradition, a lokya panya, or conventional wisdom, and then lokutara, or transcendent wisdom and it's helpful to have that understanding that it doesn't it's not part of our general world most people probably don't even suspect that it exists that true profound insight is possible but the buddha said it was possible the great teachers that have realized what he was saying no this is possible and this is beyond belief this is not about belief this is not about holding on to an idea somebody asked me the other day Said, well, you know, what happens when you die? You know, they believe in rebirth, and and um, but what about all the wisdom that you accumulate while you're living? Said, well, I think the, the understanding needs to be that the the effort we put into all our practice creates wholesome karma, creates wholesome potential, which which we can carry with us. But the conventional level of conventional understanding is no guarantee that it's going to go with us. But what the Buddha was pointing to was if you can arrive at a transcendent or a lokutra panya, a transcendent level of insight, then that does go with us. You don't lose that. That goes with us. And so to hold this understanding, uh, not to hold it so tightly, you know, sometimes we can also, you read the scriptures and you can, you can see what the, the Buddha was pointing to and you have confidence and faith in it and then be very dismissive of even conventional wisdom and you know, people who are just working on the conventional level of developing right understanding, you, you, uh, you come across this sometimes in Buddhism, people can be really, really dismissive. You say, I want to go for the top teachings. You know, I want the real thing. I don't want any of this conventional mamby-pambing, building parami business, you know, building up patience, building up kindness, building up conventional understanding. I want direct insight. If it's not the real thing, that I don't want it. And you do hear, like with, uh, with the teachings on the encouragement to cultivate loving kindness, uh, practicing metta, meditation, or compassion meditation. And that's not the real thing. You only got real compassion and, and real metta if there's transcendent knowledge there. Well, that's true. But the Buddha didn't say, wait until you've got the real thing before you do anything. Rather, with the level of what we what traditionally called pariyati practice, where you study about the teachings... Studying about the teachings, we develop pathways of the mind which then lead us towards knowing directly the teachings. And so it's like we, we establish in our hearts and minds thoughts of loving kindness. Yeah. Just making a habit of thinking, may beings be well, may beings be free from suffering. May I be free from suffering. What a great thought. 
it's much better than thinking may all beings go to hell you know which one can easily think you know you see some nasty stuff on the television or read something in the newspaper and maybe they all go to hell a lot of them horrible this world stinks you can feel that way you read the newspapers it's not difficult but well, what good does that do to our mind you know, to have thoughts like that so okay thinking the thought may all beings be free from suffering you know even these even these rat bags that you know you just read about May that rat bag be free from suffering. Somebody really, really some bad news, some real, somebody who's really no good, up to some real mischief. You know, if we really establish this wish truly in our hearts, okay, it's not transcendent compassion, but what we're doing is we're cultivating a pathway. And so that's where our energy goes. And so then we're inclining towards that which accords with Dhamma, that which accords with transcendent truth, with realization. The Buddha had the real thing. He had real compassion. He couldn't help but feel compassion. Enlightened beings can't help but feel compassion when they see suffering. They don't have any choice in the matter. It's not obscured by selfishness and ignorance like our potential compassion is. But what we can do is make much of this virtual compassion and virtual wisdom. We can contemplate the teachings on rebirth and karma and the teachings on impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and not-self. We, we cultivate these thought patterns, these pathways in our hearts and minds. This conventional, uh, lokia, panya, uh, conventional wisdom. And then what happens is pariyati level of practice. We basically, we're inclining towards the true thing, the real thing. And so uh, when I suggest holding uh, these things in the right way, like holding the the ultimate wisdom teachings, yes, it can uplift us and inspire us and encourage us. But we hold it in a way whereby we're not getting too idealistic. We can get idea too idealistic and not come back to, to dealing with life, like getting old. Yeah, it's painful, you know. You barely get down to kneel these days. <laughs> it hurts. And are we making a problem out of it or not? We say, well, this is the way it is. This is the way it is. Now, we can all say that, but can we say that with, with feeling, with meaning? Do we know about the Buddhist teachings you know, and, and just settle for that level, or are we interested in really knowing directly? You know, when we know directly, when it, it, it has a profound shift in the way we relate to life, old age, loss of loved ones. Yeah. Food is another the teachings where the Buddha talks about great beings don't make a problem out of food. They're able to live with little, be content with what's given them. I remember going to a conference with Ajahn Sumato some years ago. He gave his talk, and um, you know it's a talk that I've heard quite a number of times before, and it's okay. But then there was somebody else, uh, a, a, a neuroscientist. Uh, from uh, America, really world-renowned fellow, came and gave his talk, which was just riveting. I mean, he was so eloquent, and the arguments that he came up with, I don't know where he got them from, but they were really fascinating. He was talking about time and matter, and he even came up with some fancy explanation for He was saying how, suggesting how maybe the insights of the Buddha and Jesus Christ, all of those actually happened because of the work that these scientists were doing now in California. Now, I can't repeat his argument. I don't quite know how he got to that, but his, his understanding of time somehow took credit for the Buddha and Jesus' insights. And 
it was a very, very impressive, intelligent uh, presentation. And so that was that. And so then we went off afterwards to have lunch, and because Ajahn Sumato and I, we had our meal during the tea break because everybody else was eating after 12 o'clock. But we went to the table to be friendly, and we sat there drinking a cup of tea. And, and uh, this, this professor was sitting directly opposite us. So, and it was very interesting to watch how when the, um, the meal was being served, the lady was pushing the trolley down the aisle and she was handing out her whatever it was, plates of spaghetti, and, and she was serving the opposite table to us first. But Professor such and such, he wanted his spaghetti now, so he just reached out to take one from the, the trolley and the lady wasn't having any of it. And so she pulls her spaghetti plate back from him and then he pulls it back and he is this professor and the trolley lady having a fight over a plate of spaghetti and, and it kind of helped put this profound dissertation in perspective for me. I thought, yeah, that was good. He knows about a few things, but does he really know anything? You know, does he really know? If he, what he knows doesn't help him stop fighting with the spaghetti lady over the meal, well, then I'm not so sure that I want what he's got. You know, this is life. You know, you know, what our bones feel like. You know, can we sit and be grateful for the food that's put in, in, in front of us? Or are we just greedy for more? When we lose or even feel threatened with loss of loved ones, are we able to accord with it? So when we come across teachings that incline us towards this kind of understanding or beings that have this kind of understanding, that it's certainly a blessing to be able to spend time with them, or places where this understanding is available. Let's not take it for granted. I've heard, I've thought myself many times listening to Ajahn Sumato's talks, and I've heard that before, you know. Well, when he's about to disappear, well, then you stop taking him for granted. Uh, I've heard people, other people, uh, oh, I've heard Ajahn Sumato's talk before. Well, you know, but do you know what Ajahn Sumato's talking about? Do you really know what he knows? Well, when it's suddenly Ajahn Sumato's leaving, well, then maybe we realise perhaps it's not so good to take it all for granted. So anyway, on this evening, I hope as you go through the month, you look at uh, the Dhammapada verse, 193, and be encouraged in your own contemplation on what it means to develop wisdom. Thank you very much for your attention. <laughs> Samayan Dhamma Vadakata Sadhu Karanga Dhamma